What is up, everybody? This is Ryan here for The Scale Up Show. I have an awesome guest on today. I have Sonny Han, who is the CEO and founder of Fulcrum, was actually a former number one player in the world for World of Warcraft, or say on the number one team, did some really amazing things, talks about really, really in-depth and gets vulnerable about losing co-founders, his journey along the way, and now that things are starting to take off and come through the other side, what it takes to make that happen. You're not going to want to miss this episode. You're going to really appreciate it. Sunday goes to a lot of areas that people won't talk about. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Sunny Han. Sunny is the founder and CEO of Fulcrum. One of the amazing things that this man has done is he visited hundreds of factories to build the base of knowledge and then started all over to make the best possible product. He was ranked number one in the world in gaming on one of the top teams in the world. And on top of it, too, he even though this isn't published publicly, we got it on the scale up show, uh, raised the Series A about a year ago. So, Sonny, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thank you for having me. All right, Sonny. So before we get too deep into your, your story and about what you're doing, Let's do a real quick revenue rundown. So where are you at in terms of your ARR, in terms of your revenue journey? Uh, we just crossed the 4 million ARR threshold uh, at the end of last quarter. And um, we're adding 600 to 800,000 a quarter now, pushing for a million. A nice, nice. So that's good. So that puts you on track for that 6 to 7 million by the end of the year. Uh, so in terms of that, what's your primary go-to-market strategy for revenue growth? Um, well everybody gets funneled into an SDR in some way or shape or form. So there's a lot of referrals that come in quite a bit of inbound and, and SEM, but there's also a team of SDRs that are targeting very specific folks that are out there um, with really personalized emails that have a, a, a drift video included in them that take a long time to, to produce that we, we research them. We um, look at their website. We really take a look at their profiles as much as possible. And, it's a, a much lower volume approach than what other founders that I've talked to take, but uh, the the yield, the amount of uh, converted leads, is uh, certainly supports. Strength. So what's the what's the volume and conversion rate you're talking about? Because that's that's super interesting. And there's a lot of talk on I go more more quality over quantity. I guess you could say. Yeah, the 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 strategy is really informed by like a lot of advice from people. So I, I don't want to say that I came up with anything. I'm more of a conduit for you know learning from other people. But um, there's a short conversation that I had with the CEO of Procore, who is doing a lot of what we're doing, but for for construction and and they're a public company that's worth billions of dollars. So not even close. But one of the analogies he gave me is is that no matter what stage that you're at, you have a limited number of resources. Whether you're a public company or a tiny startup. Um, and the wider the breadth that you're putting those resources across, the more you're peanut buttering it across a bunch of different things. And I, I don't know why I don't I don't even like peanut butter, but I don't know why that particular analogy really stuck out to me. But ever since then, I've been trying to put my brain to the task of hunting for different ways to concentrate our resources and a really highly um, personalizing and customized outbound is essentially the, the best way to do it. I think that the second thing is, is there's a book called Crossing the Chasm. It's a really old book. It was written, I think, in the 80s or something. But it really talks about how there's a difference between early adopters and the early majority. And, and really, if you try to market to everybody all at the same time, 
you're going to have a lot of trouble because people buy differently, even if they're the exact same types of customers. And so those two things combined, the realization is is that um, when you're shrinking the target that you're going after, you're not shrinking your opportunity. You can always build more product, expand out, whatever it may be. You're just making it easier for someone who isn't as much of an expert on on manufacturing as I am to be able to know what to say and what to ask and, and how to target those folks. So that's really what's worked. And I think what we're not there yet, but we're hunting for pockets of companies that are in the hundreds, 300, 400 companies to be able to go after, not not the hundreds of thousands of manufacturers that are out there in the U.S. We're trying to boil that down to really small super similar pockets of three to 400. And we're trying to get one SDR to outbound all of them in one quarter. So not, not a huge amount of, uh, of, of output in terms of um, number of companies. Contacted. Okay. And with, with uh, the video conversion, so like on average versus like a normal conversion, like what, like a, I should say a non-video conversion, like what are you seeing? And we don't need to get super deep on this now. I'm just curious, like what, what kind of percentage conversion do you see on that? Um, I mean, the numbers are less impressive on the converted qualified lead side as it is on the actual replies. The replies are roughly 5x okay. higher, right? Going from a, a 2% response rate to a 10% response rate. On the converted leads, they're about 2x higher. So there's there's clearly more noise, but there's also more signal. So it's it's very Yeah, good. 2x is, I mean, 2x is really good in terms of converted. So, okay, so that's your go-to-market. That's pretty cool. Uh, at, at the same time, like how large is your team? There's three SDRs right now. One that was just hired in the last few months, um, and there are five AEs. There just there's one that was hired in, in just the last couple months as well. So the ramped team is four AEs and, and two SDRs. Okay. Well, how, how about as a company as a whole? Like how many? How big is your team? Oh, the the team is sixty sixty eight people in size okay. right now, and it's about sixty percent engineering, product, and design. So we we plow pretty heavily into the product okay. itself. That's awesome. So then from there, uh, I guess, like, what exactly does your solution do and, and how does it serve people? The best way to think about it for folks that don't work in manufacturing is that it's, imagine if your life was really, really complicated and you needed something to aggregate all the information from the different things that you do. The companies that we work with aren't huge. They're not Boeing and they're not, um, you know, GM. But they're fairly large companies that have dozens, if not hundreds and thousands of employees. And those types of companies have their business split up into different roles. There's a role that's there for selling, for, for taking in demand and returning uh, you know, quotes out. There's a group that is in charge of taking a look at all the sales orders they have and what to purchase and when to purchase it. There's a group that decides when to build things. There's a group that decides you know, how to do it and, and, and when they do it to collect the data to report back to everywhere else, to measure the quality control measurements, and then finally to ship it out and inventory it and all those good things and invoice it. Our product does all of that. And really the, the biggest quantum leap for us isn't anything that's like super clever. It's just realizing that having real-time data, having people put things into a computer system that's on the cloud, instead of writing it on a piece of paper and entering it in a few weeks later, all of the things, all of those decision-making algorithms just run a lot better. It's like waiting for two weeks to get your you know, Apple Watch data on what your heart rate was. Well, that's not nearly as useful as if you can see it live, right? That's the type of movement that we're able to offer our customers. I love that analogy. I'm going to steal that, man. It's like waiting for two weeks to have your Apple watch, like 
heart rate data while you're in the middle working out <laughs> so you don't have a heart attack, right? I obviously added those last pieces yep. on there, but I love that. Um, okay, so, and then are you, I mentioned that you're, you're Series A, so uh, you're funded in, at that Series A level. How much was your funding? Uh, our Series A was 18.8 million, and we closed it quite a bit ago on June of last year. So it's been a year and a quarter now since then, a year and a few months. Um, and we raised a C round in uh, August of 2020. So other than that, before that, we were bootstrapped. Okay. Excellent, man. So why, since you were bootstrapped, why did you decide to take on funding? Oh, man. So many reasons. Uh, one, I th- this sounds so obvious, but it's really not possible to focus on two things at once, no matter how smart I think I am. Um, trying to operate a consulting firm that generates margin that then funds a product development effort, that was one of the biggest mistakes in my life. Now, we, we learned a ton, but I think what we should have done is we should have focused on just the consulting work, given ourselves a timeline, built a bunch of stuff, and did it in a way that we expected to hand it off to another firm to maintain or whatever it is, uh, chose a cutoff date and then, and then pivoted to completed product. But that also wouldn't have been possible, right? The structures you set up, the the people that you you have to go sell, to go invoice, to manage projects, those are not the same types of people that you need to build a product company. And so the, it was just a pipe dream. It was it was me fitting in what I wanted to happen into what uh, um, was going to happen, and, and I shouldn't have done that. But um, pivoting over was the realization that if we wanted this to ever be a product, we needed to make a definitive choice. And so we burned through the capital that we of the profit that we made. Uh, this was right during COVID and we got a PPP loan and that actually extended our runway for another six months. And that allowed us to get it, to raise a seed round with a product already built, basically. It was, it was really, really, really shallow compared to what we have now. We, we probably have 50 times more product than we did then. But it was enough to show that people wanted to buy it, that they were engaging from our marketing, that they were um, you know, signing contracts, that they were implementing, that they were working with us. And, and I think that without that focus for the seven months that we did, I, I, don't, I don't know that we would have been nearly as far as we are now. So I don't want you to think that I regret doing it that way, but that transition was not smooth. And it was, I would not recommend it to anyone. So if you can go in a time machine and, and like, if you do it, did it all over again, what would be your path? Um, I would have just, I, I moved into my parents' basement when I started the company, but we were doing consulting work. So I was able to pay myself a small salary almost at, at first. I think had, at, because I already moved into my parents' basement because I was already, you know, freezing my ass off during the, the winter time um, with no heat down there. Like, I should have just bit off the entire amount and said, no consulting firm. Let me just fly around the country using frequent flyer points and do this research and really just commit to building the product. I think in retrospect, it's a lot easier to see, but in the moment I didn't realize just how possible it was to build something. It wasn't going to be good, but in the moment, I didn't even realize that it was possible that you could work and build something that somebody wants. Like that's actually not very difficult at all. It's building something that's really good. That's difficult. And I actually think we could have gotten really early traction pretty quickly. I think we would have diluted a ton more and raised a lot more capital to get to where we are now. So there's a huge amount of monetary value of the bootstrapping that we did. Um, But I, I think that the focus 
would have taught me more lessons sooner. Uh, and as a person, as like a, a human that has a limited lifespan, I would be further ahead in my journey than I am now. And I think that would have been worth the additional dilution. So I know that's a really weird and convoluted way to answer your question, but I didn't, I think back then when I was 30, I wasn't thinking about my the totality of my life and how I could be useful to society. I was just trying not to fail. So Dude, no, I think that's, I think it was totally deep, man. I think that was awesome, you know, and the way you kind of looked at it versus value versus time value versus money value, right? And how you, how you kind of wrapped it together. So don't you think though, like that you learned a lot from the consulting to make the product really good? And I actually think, yes, I, um, but I also learned, I think far more on how to make the company good. There are just mistakes about um, having tough confrontations with friends that you work with, right? When you start a company, you're going to hire friends. And I was just really awkward about having normal business confrontations with people that were friends um, about letting people go uh, soon and paying them, a se- paying them a severance instead of trying to force someone who's never going to work out, try to work out. Like these are painful lessons that, you know, I was avoiding being a tyrant or being some evil person, but it's actually far more, um, you know, humane and ethical to just be blunt with someone and say, look, this clearly, this is stressing you out. You're not being productive here. This is not a good fit. Let me scrape together whatever cash I can to just help you have a soft landing to get the next role. Mm-hmm. And I just, at a point in time, I just could not have that conversation. I don't know why it was just, it's painfully cringy thinking about it right now, looking back on my life. But, um, I think those types of lessons, understanding what culture actually means, why it's important, how to protect it, that that the creation of culture has more to do with removing things and adding things that, you know, keeping that culture alive means being really specific and having an extremely high bar on who you hire. I learned all of those lessons when the stakes weren't as high as in, in the product mm-hmm. company. So I I think those are the lessons that I, that, that I would not have learned um, that losing would be really painful. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I mean, that's, that once again, love, love the insight that you had there. So um, a lot of lessons, because I mean, it is tough. I mean, because I've had to do it multiple times is firing people. You know, you, you could take it personally. You could, you could lie to yourself and tell them that, oh, I just need to give them more time when like in your heart, you know, that's just like, it's not a good fit. But what, what I've kind of found is too, especially in performance-based jobs, a lot of times people fire themselves, right? And, and what I mean by that is just like, if they really wanted to be there, or they really wanted to be successful, their actions would be different than, and their choices would be different than what they're doing. So um, it's hard, but, you know, sometimes it's the way you got to look at it. So, so shifting gears a little bit, like, I mean, we, we kind of got into your journey a little bit and some of the things that you were doing. You said there was a lot of lumps and, and things that you went through that were challenging. I guess, like, what would you say, like, was this the biggest mistake that you made as you were going through that? that journey um, to get to where you're at today? Oh man, there's so many. I, I, I think probably the departure of my two co-founders is the worst thing, um, the most painful and also the most like damning, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. There, there, were, there were different incentives. When, when I started the company, um, it was me and, and, and my friend that I'd played video games with in, in college. Um, he had worked at Google as an engineer, was a really, is a really talented engineer, um, and just was extremely well plugged into the startup community. His roommate 
uh, or his one of his friends in, in, in college was a CEO of Mixpanel. There was like a, a ton of connections that he had in Silicon Valley and he lived out there for a while. He and I had always talked, you know, uh, online, like about starting a company, about building a product that would make a meaningful impact on the world and, and have some commercial viability. Um, and so the two of us started off and, and one of the packs that we made was that we're not going to have a consulting firm. We're going to build a product. And I think we, there was agreement between the two of us that the, pro, the bigger the product we built, the bigger the opportunity, the, the harder it is, right? Because if it's easy and there's a big market, that means everybody else would have done something in that market already. Um, and I think we hunted around. We, to be honest, we didn't really have an exact idea of what we wanted to build. And I, and I found that in talking to founders, that's more common than I thought. I was embarrassed about that for a long time. But the vast majority of founders that I think do a really good job that I respect have some similar story where it was like, I just wanted to do something that was cool and meaningful. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And I found that out by, by trying. Um, but we, we, we had a few consulting customers that paid us a lot of money that we built custom software for. And it was just an incredible experience of learning how to work with these people and how to extract the truth out of them and build the thing that should be built instead of what they wanted to be built and for my whole career, I'd basically been just doing whatever clients asked for, whatever they asked for and they're willing to pay for. I thought about it. I was clever and I processed it. And it was a way to like kind of flex the muscle of billing somebody money and getting paid for it, but testing where the boundaries were of how I could be like, no, I think that's a bad idea. Let's do this instead. And that was an incredible learning. We brought another one of our friends along, one of the most talented engineers that we both knew. Um, and the three of us, kind of built this thing. We, we at, at somewhat accidentally built a very functional, very large, dozens of people large consulting firm that was pulling in millions of dollars a year and making hundreds of thousands, over a million dollars in profit in some years. Um, and over time, that decision to not commit to product or to uh, consulting, that ate away at the profits and caused a huge amount of stress put us in a position where sometimes we couldn't make payroll and I didn't pay myself. And the three of us didn't have the same opinions about not paying ourselves. And I didn't make sure that we did. I just assumed that we all did. There was just a lot of that going on that I realized that one of the things that I do that is really valuable, but also horrible is I try really hard and I hold other people to the same, not the same standard, but the same expression of that standard. And that's what I used to do. And, and I think that was the core of, of what caused the, the tension. So um, at a certain point in time, my, my first friend quit and said, I can't advise you to give up on the consulting stuff, but I don't think that you're going to, you know, start committing to building a product. And then a year after that, uh, my other friend left as well saying that it doesn't seem like your heart is in uh, this consulting gig and, and, you know, I'm not convinced this product is going to work. So in trying to save both and trying to balance both out, I ended up losing both of them. And I, I, I've recovered um, some of that friendship and, and they're both on the cap table in a very small way. But, um, but yeah, I, that was clearly a mistake that I made. And, and had I chosen one or the other, it's not clear that we would have been successful. It's not clear that uh, either of them would have stayed in anyway, but it would have been the better thing to have done. So. Yeah.
this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter. Check out other free content resources I have there. And let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. So Sonny, you know, like, I think that was, that was really telling what you just walked us through in terms of the, the biggest mistake with your co-founders and, and how it was hard because you weren't, you weren't, you were committed and you were trying to focus on multiple different things. And, um, you know, like what you're talking about with your high standard of yourself, it does make it difficult on others sometimes when they don't have the same level. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, I don't know, are you, did you watch basketball at all? Are you a basketball fan or no? A lot more when I was a kid than recently. So I haven't I haven't really kept up since COVID. I, I kind of just stopped watching all sports when I wasn't sure if seasons were going to stop or not. So uh, <laughs> if it's something recent, I probably haven't followed it. No. Well, Michael Jordan talked about it in The Last Dance. Like, I think that's why he had such a hard time with teammates, had such a hard time with them because he had like a really, really high standard in himself. And so he tried to translate that to everybody else and the level of intensity wasn't there. Um, so anyways, that's just kind of what that reminds me of, um, potentially, cause I've ran into that personally myself as well. So, uh, what would you say then like, is your, your single biggest challenge that you're running into now growing the company? Well, every single time that we grow and we scale the team up a bit, it, it's always jarring, right? Like in the beginning, it was just me visiting shops, talking to people, talking to other folks deciding what to build and product um, had just lost one of my co-founders, right? It's, it was really just me. And then I very quickly, I involved a couple other folks on a team. One person who's leading product right now, another person who's leading design. The two of them really came in and helped me quite a bit. Um, but in those moments, those discussions about what to build and how to build it, they were extremely crisp and fluid. And we'd all go to bed and wake up and talk in the morning again. And the conversation would just continue. And you had this feeling of like knowing everything, if you will. And if there were mistakes, they were fine, but you could just kind of pick it up and click on. Well, when we raised a seed round, we went from 10 people to 30 people. And those 10 people, most of them had been together for four years doing consulting work, right? So there was a bond that we had formed. And I was able to zoom out pretty quickly, like, and have them take over and, and manage some things and talk to each other. And so now I'm kind of managing a team. I'm, I'm not part of every conversation. I'm letting things happen. I'm directing things. I'm still being very, very specific about a lot of stuff. When you go from 30 to 60, 70 people, um, you're zooming out again. And now you're having to create a leadership team. And I think I underappreciated just how much of a cheat code it was to have this group of 10 people that had been together for so long before we hired 20 more people. The depth of knowledge that they had, the experience that they had, them knowing me and what I like, them knowing each other, how to handle conflict with each other. They had years to hash that out. This new group of folks, they're all smarter than us. They're all better than us. They're all better engineers and better salespeople and better everything. Um, and they've now had a year, year and a half of experience with the product and with the, with the, with the, the customers. But they haven't had that many four years of experience with each other. And I think I, I massively underestimated that when we, um, when, we, when we added those 30, 35 people on board recently. 
that was way bumpier than I expected. And we're just getting to the end of smoothing that out. And the thing that I, I'm learning that seems obvious again is no matter what, all the good things you did last time to make it happen smoothly, you can't assume they're just going to happen again. You have to put the same level of intensity and focus on all those things and then add on more after that. So that's something that we're just getting over. Um, another thing that's a, a big challenge right now is just when we were small, it was possible to focus on one thing, move and focus on another thing, move and focus on another thing in sequence. And things happen so quickly that you knew where the constraints were and you were just like fixing stuff left and right. We're now having to work on multiple parallel things at the same time and have a group together. And, you know, wh- whether it's an OKR method or something, there's there's tools out there to help organize these thoughts. But even with the tools, you got to bake it into the organizational structure of how you communicate and how you talk to each other. So um, we haven't done that. And that's not going super well. It's not affecting the current operations of the team per se, but it's affecting our ability to then keep scaling up, right? If we can't figure out how to organize and and talk to each other and and decide things and do things now without a lot of effort, well, it's not going to help to add another 60 people into the team, right? So that's really what I'm I'm working on is is trying to create more conflict. Uh, One of uh, our board members, um, Ishan, he was the CEO of Reddit for a long time. He's the CEO of Terraformation, a company that's working on terraforming the, the world right now. Way bigger problems than we're trying to solve. But one of the things he warned me about is that if you want to hire a bunch of really smart, conscientious people that aren't assholes, there's no asshole policy, what you're going to struggle with is you're going to struggle with the white space between them. The super conscientious, highly motivated people, they're going to avoid conflict where possible. And the danger is things are going to get dropped. They're going to get dropped because you're missing conflict. Conflict actually helps improve the coverage of all the tasks that need to be done. And that framework has been super helpful. And it feels really counterintuitive that I'm trying to encourage more conflict within the team. But really, that that is the missing piece. And we're getting a lot better at it. And the good thing is that when you encourage conflict a bunch amongst a bunch of nice, kind, good-natured, hardworking people, it, it's goofy, but it's it's not it's not painful, right? It's not harsh. So um, it's it's been a good thing to see, and, and I think we're growing a lot in that way. Okay, that's pretty cool. And and so any departments that are <clears throat> really challenging in terms of integrating like that DNA into the company or that management cadence? Um, there's a few things for a lot of different reasons, um, and and I'm sure you know it's like companies always have different constraints and grow and and, and shrink at different paces, but. Um, there's some things that we've done like recruiting uh, or customer success that were just embedded in other roles. It was in the implementation role. You just maintain those relationships. We, we've never had a customer success role until just a few months ago, like six months, nine months ago, a year ago, maybe. Um, recruiting was really decentralized across the teams. The salespeople would, would recruit, the, the engineers would recruit. Now that things are starting to get centralized, right? As you grow, you need these centralization pieces to offer efficiencies, um, we're realizing that there's actually a, a lack of real knowledge as to how we do things. So those are the things that, that were initially hard, but have basically smoothed them things out, themselves out. I think really it's just coming up with ever increasingly strong cultural values and, and, and direction so that people don't have to coordinate as much to arrive at an aligned answer. And I, I think I didn't realize just how powerful it was to have a small team that by proxy all talk to each other just because they had to. 
And I don't think I increased the alignment through some sort of unifying direction enough. I thought I did, but it, I think it needs an entire scale up there to be able to get it so that different groups can 95% of the time not step on each other's toes. So that I think is, is, is really, it's not any one group, it's cross-functionally. And because we're starting to silo things out, you just have to specialize a bit. Those seams between the departments aren't established enough in a way that works really well yet. Okay. Excellent, man. Well, unfortunately, we are, uh, and it was really well thought out answer. Uh, Unfortunately, we're up on time right now. So where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Fulcrum? And then uh, we'll wrap it up, man. For every podcast I'm on, I always offer my email. It's sunny like the weather, S-U-N-N-Y at fulcrumpro.com. And uh, you can learn more about us at fulcrumpro.com. You can book a demo, look at our product. Uh, If you want to reach out on LinkedIn or uh, send me an email, I'm always happy to respond and connect with anybody. Excellent, man. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. If you are not connected to Sonny on LinkedIn, definitely connect to him. He has a very funny profile. Uh, Just the way he words things and some of the things that he put about his exits before. So check it out. It'll give you a chuckle. It made me laugh. So, Sonny, it was awesome having you on the show, and I really appreciate you being on, man. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for good questions. All right. Thank you, sir. We'll see you all on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.